I'm all set. Thanks. Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is the 6th of December, 2012, and Ray McNulty is guest tonight. Welcome, Ray. Hey, thanks, Steve. Really appreciate it. Do you like this picture I found of you? Uh, yeah, I do. It's, 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 um, it's great. I had, I had a lot of dark hair there. That's kind of nice. It was the highest resolution one I could find. I figured you'd want to look formal. The Future Absolutely. of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. I am on the Hacker Education Tour, and um, uh, Ray, in part, has been a sponsor of that tour. So I want to thank Ray for that. Ray, thank you. You're very welcome. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, this is the last scheduled city this year. I'm in Phoenix. Peggy George, I think, is in the room, and Peggy's been a great support there. Uh, it should be a lot of fun. We've had some terrific virtual conferences this year. They're all recorded and up online. Uh, we just concluded the Global Education Conference that had 420-something sessions. They're all up at globaleducationconference.com. And we've just announced the School Leadership Summit, which will be March 28, 2013, sponsored by um, TCAL. Uh, and then Hewlett-Packard is going to sponsor a worldwide STEM conference. It's tentatively scheduled for April, the Reform Symposium in May, and then I've announced the Homeschool Conference, which is really going to be fun. Looking forward to all of those. Coming up on the Future of Education next week is the EduBlog Awards. Uh, this should be a lot of fun, and I'll be broadcasting live from Boston. And um, it's always a fun evening. Please feel free to tune in. It's really uh, entertaining. Cal Newport comes on that next day on his new book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, to talk about skills versus passion, uh, which actually is going to play in nicely with tonight. Um, Adam Fry will talk to us about EdTech entrepreneurism and lots more there. New on the schedule is a discussion on student journalism as the 21st century curriculum, which should be fun. Um, Gavin Dykes on student voice has a scheduled date. Um, and Howard Rheingold's going to come and talk about pyragogy or peer learning. I think it's technically pedagogy, but he's calling it pyragogy. Makes sense. All of our interviews are recorded. They're up in full Blackboard Collaborate versions in an MP3. Uh, we heard from Stacy Roshan. Uh, okay, so yesterday we actually had Gina Bianchini on, but I don't consider that a future of education interview. So Tuesday, Stacy came on to talk about how she's flipped her math classroom and, uh, and the importance of the actual teacher doing the recordings versus sending the recording, the students to see recordings of other people. And that was really, really enlightening. And I'm staying at the home of some friends, and I walked out to tell them about that interview. And their daughter, who's a senior in high school, has a math teacher who's doing exactly that. And it's been terrific, a terrific experience for her this year. She has an economics teacher who's actually been sending the kids to videos that he has not created. And kids are transferring out of that class. So there's just something very sort of special about the teacher's ability to gauge the students and to make recordings specific to her class. So that was fun. Jim Groom was on. If you want some controversial viewing, watch that show. That was really fun. Anyway, lots up there. I hope there's something of value for you. This is where the studio audience gets to tell us where they're listening from. Look for the star to the left of the map. Double click on it.
and click on the map. Give a shout out. Ray, I think you're the unfortunate recipient of a busy week of events. But, yeah, that's uh, okay. I, I did check the, I went, I went through today and did a check on the number of recording lessons I'm getting to, and they're quite high. So that's great. Hopefully you'll, you'll have um, a Sounds bigger good. listenership in the podcast. So it looks like we have a couple in Arizona. Three, maybe. Yeah, I know a couple of those people. And I think we have one up in um, in Detroit too. Well, wherever you're from, not yet. <clears throat> now I'm listening. I'm I'm playing from Canada. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> okay, so I did create a mighty bell room for this event, and I put up uh, some links from from uh, Ray's work, uh, his Twitter account, the Penn Foster site. I'm going to put that link in the chat here. And you're welcome to continue the conversation in that Mighty Bell space after the show is over. Okay, so uh, Ray, uh, I've enjoyed getting to know you vicariously through your book. You know, it's not us against them and the paper that you sent me and the long yep. phone conversation that you and I had. Um, I love mm -hmm. the story of your mom's advice to you. Yeah, where she says, my mom's "Do gravy. what you're most passionate about." Well, no, it was the yeah. Well, it was yep. the, you could yep. tell the gravy story, but she no, said, "Do okay. what you're most passionate about and follow it wholeheartedly." And yep. I'm not sure that was common advice in that era, was it? <laughs> I don't think it was. I I think um, you know my mom. Uh, this is kind of one of those things that you know she um, she completed sixth grade and um, had to spend time. Uh, Taking care of family, and um, I, you know, I, I think sometimes we credit school with a lot of things, but so much learning happens outside of school. There's just no real metrics out. There's no real metric out there that that states or governments or or schools want to want to use to measure that. But I think my mom um, was incredible was an incredibly sensitive and, and thoughtful person who figured out how the world worked without having to spend much time in school. And um, I always remember her advice to me, and uh, I, 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 I kind of live by as much of it as I possibly can. You know, I, I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration, but I would say that the that I was basically told to just obey, right? Don't make <laughs> don't make waves. Sit in the back of the you know. Don't raise your hand unless you have a really good question. Uh, I, I was surprised by that advice, and. And my guess is that it served you well as you've been thinking about education. Well, I, you know, I, I think Steve, it has. I mean, I think, um, you know, this is kind of an interesting uh, twist in, in the conversation tonight as you raise that issue. It's kind of uh, very special to me, and it's something um, that I've been learning a little more about since I've joined the Penn Foster team. Um, and that's um, something... Uh, let me see if I can get this uh, idea out to you and see if it's going to raise people's eyebrows or it's going to cause them to um, to jump on it. But um, you know, in in most of our school, in school, I should say, the relationships between um, teachers and students is almost a you know, as you said, it's an obedient and in many ways a subservient um, and you know relationship where it's 
the teacher says this and you do it. There's not really questioning it. And um, one of the things that I've been learning about some of the work we've been doing lately at Penn Foster is that we're trying to build into it um, student as a customer rather than student as a student. And um, a customer relationship is very different than a student relationship. And um, I've been learning from our president, Joe Gagnone, at Penn Foster a lot about um, the concept of hospitality and the concept of um, this relationship that's very different than a, than a, a teacher-student relationship. And I'm wondering at times, and this is something, and I'd have to honestly say in the last, um, well, I've been at Penn Foster now seven months, but I'd say in the last five months, I, I've been really thinking deeply about this relationship piece and, um, and how we look at our students. Um, when I was writing my book, and I, um, I grabbed the title of my book from a student that I was interviewing, um, It's Not Us Against Them. And in many schools, the, 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 the culture is it's us against them. And I, I think that's a, th those relationships are so critical in, in learning. And um, that's why I've I'm, I'm been intrigued by some of the work that's going on in the online world right now. Uh, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit. I mean, I, I know that probably in the last five months you're, you've probably been thinking about this. But that message came through really loud and clear in the book the relationship message. In fact, it's a part of what I really want to focus on tonight because um, there are so many sort of forces aligned against that, especially as it relates yes. to social media. Oh, yeah. But before we do so, yep. I want to give you my own food story. This is an analogy. Sounds great. I'm interested in how you respond to this. So uh, yeah. last week I was in LA for this tour and we stayed with some friends who own a restaurant. And it's the second generation uh, of, of restauranting in this family. And it's a Mexican restaurant. And there's a, a lovely community feel to, to the restaurant. And you go in, and they make their own guacamole, the little rolling cart in front of you that they've been doing for years. They actually have the original guacamole cart hung up in the, in the front of the restaurant. And they have uh, menu items named after customers. And it's clearly a community experience. So we were talking with our friends about, you know, sort of what the restaurant business is like. And it's not easy. There's just no question that's a hard business. Down it's a very hard business. Down the street from them is a McDonald's. Right? And I know what franchised fast food restaurants make. And it's, n it's no small amount of change for the person who owns that franchise. Or, or it can be quite lucrative. So we got to talking about sort of the difference between uh, a food culture or a restaurant that's sort of passionately committed to um, a, a specific type of food and an audience and the fast food chain. And if you were to measure restaurants by virtue of caloric output and profit, McDonald's would be at the top of the list, right? The, the My wife would agree with you. That's correct. <laughs> well, the use of those two particular measures would give you a filter that would that would promote McDonald's as the solution. If your filter was quality of food and health and nutrition and community and long-term employment, then you would have a very different model or filter for what success would be. Is that a fair way to kind of describe 
part of what's happening with our focus on high stakes testing and um, kind of turning things over to the free market. Is that too simplistic to say that it's likely to be kind of bland, non-nutritious education because of the nature of how we're thinking we should measure? <laughs> it's it's funny. I was uh, writing down some things while you were speaking, and I don't know if this will start a war or not, <laughs> but um, I was envisioning the common core in the McDonald's stream. Um, oh, we need know. a cartoon now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? It's, you know it, it, the the thing. Um, you know, I've been playing around. I. I, I I love what you were just saying because um, the if you think about this idea and it's something that again I've been learning uh, a lot lately I've, about the fact that there's no longer any there's no longer an average American out there in the world and um, I kind of uh, I kind of think that every time we try to treat everybody with the same medicine or doctrine that what we're doing is we're um, we're really uh, eliminating um, what makes e what makes education passionate. Um, when you link education to the individual and their desires, rather than everybody do everybody gets this. Um, I think you know that's that's a part of education that's missing. I was um, I was in St. Louis this week, actually yesterday, and I was addressing a, a group of superintendents and. Um, you know, I was trying to get them to understand that with the, this concept of, uh, and I use it every now and then, I, uh, a picture of a thermostat on the wall, um, and we can set the thermostat to 68, and um, when you set a thermostat to 68, some people are cold, some people are hot, and some people are fine. And every time we play to some common aspect of education for everybody, I think we diminish the uh, passion that each person has for it. And I think um, when I was with these superintendents, I think, but I know when I was with these superintendents in, in St. Louis, I asked them uh, in their school improvement plans, what do they have in their plans that deal with creating the passion to learn, the excitement to learn, and the relationships that are needed to create a culture for learning. And not one person could respond to that. They all talked about the, quant the quantitative data around test scores and students not meeting a particular standard and not anything about you know, this, this real richness, you know, kind of what you were talking about, probably you know, the, the passion that goes into the guacamole that's made in that restaurant. Um, it's not the same as if you went to Taco Bell, that's for sure. I think we're going to have fun with this tonight. It's always interesting. It's to getting me hungry right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's always interesting to me to pick up a book that, you know, that obviously is just a part of the interview series that I was I had little awareness of before you sent it to me. Uh, that, you know, that was written a couple of years ago or three years ago now, and to find yeah. something in it that's immediately pertinent to what I'm thinking about. And it was in your afterword. And you have this diagram. It's input, process, and output. And I'm not kidding when I tell you that I have, uh, over the last year, used an almost identical diagram mm -hmm. to describe the, the ways in which we try and skip process and go right to output. Yes. There's, um, there's this 
moment of opportunity, right, to uh, kind of fertilize, condition the soil, and then there would be, you know, a good harvest. Um, Bill Walsh, the mm -hmm. football coach, called it uh, the score will take care of itself, right? If you work on the process, you'll get the right outcome. And in your book, there's this pervasive sense of, okay, if we can just be working on the right things, the, the scores will take care of themselves, but we're yeah, not I, working on the right things. I think, you know, um, the, I, uh, there's a word, and I'm trying to reach for it right now, but um, uh, I can maybe explain it. Um, the word has to do with responding uh, to the wrong stimuli. Um, let me give you an example. Um, um, thunder, everyone runs from thunder. Thunder will not kill you, lightning will. And um, I think we respond to the wrong stimuli quite often in education today because um, the focus is on the output, on the test scores. And um, I think when you build incredible relationships, when you get to know the students, when you, um, when you when you get people, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, don't you work hard for the people that you really love? Don't you work hard for the people that you really respect? Um, you know, that, that, that's, those are missing pieces. And I think uh, a dear friend of mine by the name of uh, Robert Brooks, at, he's at Harvard. He's a professor in um, the school, Harvard School of Medicine. He's a, a psychologist. He and I just spend so much time talking about the fact that um, we are, we're rushing to use these test scores as indicators of success. Um, and I'm really troubled by the fact that we just don't talk to students and talk to um, the school community and figure out whether the school's working or not. Um, right now in the United States, one of the things that's concerning me a great deal is um, student voice. The fact that students need to have a, a very powerful voice in their education, as any consumer would, and um, the thing uh, I think that what I what I find is this um, this this rush to focus on assessment and not on the process of engaging ed engaging students in the learning. So, in many states right now, and I, I don't recall if it's Florida or whatnot, but there are many states that have just embraced this idea of um, spending millions of dollars on teacher evaluation systems where um, uh, principals will go in with an, I, an iPad or a, an electronic device and watch teachers teach and grade the teachers' interactions on 40 different principals. And the fact of the matter is, if they just started to talk to students and, um, you know, they'd find out a lot about who are, the, who are the people that they really respect. And um, I think teachers need feedback from students about the teaching, and I don't think they need as much of it from administration. Now, that may be quite controversial. I'm not saying that uh, the administrator's role is not important, but I think it's about the students having a voice in their learning. But this show, that's not controversial. Let me <laughs> suggest something and have you see if this is a good path to go on. So I've often quoted my dad who said, um, in the absence of being able to measure what's meaningful, we end up giving too much meaning to that which we can measure. Right? So in the case of McDonald's, right, yep. this is a large corporation, and the, a, a, a vertical corporation needs numbers that can travel up and down the vertical easily. 
go from the franchise owner to the district person to you know whatever state and then the national. But so they have to have numbers that travel easily within the organization. And the kinds of feedback you would get from my friend's Mexican restaurant would be really hard to quantify and aggregate and measure up and down. So was part of the issue here that we're allowing the desire for sort of centralized control to lead us to measures that move easily up and down that vertical but aren't in fact the most important ones? Well, you know, I, I um, my, my answer would be I, I think you're right on about that. I think, um, you know, we're, when we think about um, learning, learning is such a personal thing. Um, it's so, so um, it's, it's not, I mean, let's see if I can put it this way. You know, I think, um, I think we're living in an incredibly exciting time in education, but it's also a very um, perplexing time because um, our educational system really was designed to make everybody, you know, pay attention, be quiet, and do what you're told. And um, the world has changed so dramatically since then, it's time for a new model. And we just can't seem to let go of the past um, aspects of what we believe that schools are supposed to be about. You know, we have this sense that it's, that, um, that it's just a factory. And I, what I struggle with, and let me see if I can um, if I, give me a minute to tell an interesting story about why I've really gotten hooked on this, is that um, in 1995, my uh, twin sons were graduating from high school. And I was superintendent of schools in Brattleboro, Vermont. And I was going to be giving them their diplomas, and I was quite proud and excited about that. Um, we had 238 graduating students that year in the class. And um, I knew all of them by first name, not, be, not because I was superintendent, but because um, over the course of the four years, I had either, either had them in my car, or they'd eaten at my house, or they slept on my floors, um, or we went on field trips with them. But what was really interesting, Steve, was that when I was handing out the diplomas um, to the students, a student that had been at my house the night before, a, a, a friend of my son's, uh, Scott, was um, getting ready to get up on stage. And I, um, he was kind of a, a, an interesting character. He wasn't a great student, was a fun kid. My nickname for him was Kramer. He was always kind of a, that he, he behaved in that way. But as he was getting up on stage, um, uh, I thought he was going to be you know, laughing and smiling and happy about graduating. And I handed him his diploma. and. I said to him how how, um, how how glad I was that he had made it, and he looked at me and he said, uh, "I have nothing to be proud of today." And that's when I handed him his high school diploma. Um, to speed the story up, when the ceremony was over, I ran over to him and I said, "You know, I said Scott, what's the matter?" And he said, um, "He said, you know, I'm number 200. I'm I'm in the bottom 10 percent," he said, "of this class." And um, what struck me, Steve, was that this student was an incredibly talented artist. He could draw anything. But yet on his, our school measured him by his success in uh, four English, three math, three science, three social studies, and a bunch of electives. Um, he came to my school district with a gift. 
uh, a true gift, and we did not recognize it. And on his graduation day, we honored those students that were great at everything, that were good at everything. And those that had unique talents, we didn't honor them. And um, that has stung me since 1995, because I, I can't believe I ran a system that did not honor the unique talents and excitement that each student brought to our system. So you know, it goes back to the McDonald theory, is that when you have one way of judging all of your students, um, they all are different. They all are unique. Uh, my wife and I have seven um, children and eight grandchildren, and I could tell you that every single one of them is very different, and I wouldn't want to judge them all by the same standard. Well, certainly we've, uh, we end up talking a lot about this on the show because um, we, see it, we see them through a deficiency lens, and so because we want them to measure up in all of the areas to a certain standard, we focus on the deficiencies rather than on the gifts. Let's, yes. Let's shift gears if we can a little. Go sure. ahead. Did you want to respond or? Well, I just wanted to say that I I I remember Bob Brooks from Harvard. I was talking with him one day, and he said, as as he's interviewing many students, they wouldn't say it this way, but a lot of our struggling students would say, "School is a place I go to to where my deficits are accented." And um, if you just think about that, how exciting would you be going into school every day? Um, where you, for what it is, is your deficits are accented. I think that's part of the joy of becoming an adult, is that you can choose to ignore the things you don't do well and work <laughs> on the things that you do. Yes, <laughs> that's very true. Okay, so let's give this some context. I, I want to uh, do two things uh, before sure. we kind of move to the student voice and the relationship pieces and, and others. Um, could you give us a little bit of a sense of your background prior to uh, Penn Foster? Sure. Um, yeah, I started uh, as a teacher in 1973 in, um, in rural Vermont. And um, I stayed in that school district uh, for, I think, about 14 years. And over that period of time, I became I was a teacher, a prin assistant principal, principal, assistant superintendent, superintendent. Uh, Moved on to another superintendency in the state of Vermont, uh, and then um, became commissioner of education there under Governor Dean, and uh, then under Republican Governor Douglas. Um, at that time in education, I um, and during that period of time, I kind of got lucky and got elected to be the president of ASCD, um, which was a great opportunity. But um, then I got a uh, phone call from Tom Vanderock, and I know you interviewed Tom. Uh, not too long ago, and um, he asked. He asked. He said to me one day. He said, "When you get tired of begging the legislature for money, give me a call." And so I called him when I got the email, <laughs> and went to work for uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation for a while. Um, learned a lot. Um, met a lot of interesting and uh, talented educators around the country. And then um, I was uh, lured away from the. Gates Foundation by a guy by the name of Bill Daggett. I'm not sure if you know Bill, but he's kind of a futurist, ran a very large consulting group that was then bought by Scholastic, where I became uh, president of the consulting group, and um, did that up until May 1st, when um, I, um, I was just incredibly attracted to the work that Penn Foster has been doing in the online world, and um, looking to see if um, 
I could bring my talents into Penn Foster to help create what I believe uh, needs to happen, and that's kind of the epic win. Um, I think we've got to start to create as many models for our students to learn as possible. So, so I want a quick history. It's a good history, and I want to. Uh, we'll touch on Penn Foster in a minute, but before we do so, I'm really glad you brought up Tom Vander Ark and the Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Because I interviewed Tom and found, uh, I found that I really disagreed with him about something. Mm -hmm. and, it, and you mentioned it in the book, which is this idea that when we, the technology will allow us to highly personalize education and it will actually reduce the time demands on teachers. Now, I'm not the parent of seven children, but the, the parent of four. And what I told Tom was, I actually find that while it may be less stressful to give my kids some agency and then to support their independent learning and, and a personalized learning plan, it's certainly not less time for me. Um, I don't associate the kinds of things that you said in the book with the Gates Foundation work. Is that my just not knowing them well enough or, um, or am I missing something? I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, um, I, I, um, I think one of the challenges that the foundation has has um, has been that they've been, you know, trying to move um, a nation in its educational thinking, and um, the thing I'm finding and and particularly the work I did at the International Center and then what I'm doing here at Penn Foster is um, you know, the, the change doesn't come from the outside in. Um, I, I think when I find a great school, um, when I look at the work that Dennis Litke's done and I look at the work that, uh, that was done at New Tech High and, it, and it, at one of my favorite schools in the country, Brockton High School, um, the work came from the inside. Um, you know, the educators became the agents of change after really digging in deep with um, with the the, the 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 understanding that they had to take on the change. And and I could tell you from being a commissioner of education, it's it's really difficult to make the changes from the top down. Something has to happen on the inside to inspire people um, to want to to do more and be more. And um, when that begins, incredible change happens. And so I think, um, I think, you know, um, I think, well, I guess that's what I think. I mean, I just, I don't know if I'm answering your question well enough, but I, you know, I find change hard. I mean, as a commissioner, I, I really felt I had almost less, less power than I did as a, as a principal. So let's go back to our restaurants for just a second. I promise we'll get ourselves back on track. But so I'm that's all right. I'm the city manager, and I would really like to develop a good food culture in my city. It's good for tourism. It's good for all kinds of things. So I can't just say we're going to measure these things, and if you don't make the grade, you know, uh, you can't have a restaurant here. Somehow I have to create a culture that would support and encourage the building up of restaurants that actually were varied and unique and interesting and dedicated. 
uh, it feels to me like we need to be asking ourselves that same question for schools. And you do this brilliantly in the book, which is you say, these schools are very different, but they're successful because mm -hmm. somebody in them cared and really was passionate to lead them toward good work. Is there a way at a policy level to think about how you cultivate an environment for that kind of accomplishment? Well, you know, I um, I think there is, uh, and it's kind of a, um, you know, it's one of those things that I, at times, I think um, if I had the ability to, um, let's say, I mean, if I was, and I don't know if I would be president or whatever you want to be, but if I could, if I had all the chits and I could make some rules, I would just, um, I would just basically say to schools, I'd have a very simple policy, I believe, and the policy would be, look, if I give you a hundred kids, um, and you have them for uh, six years, I, I just want them at the end of six years to have had six years of growth, and and I would like them to also be excited about learning. And uh, we'd have to figure out a way to, to interview them at the end of that time. But I wouldn't tell them what you needed to do at first grade and second grade and third grade, or even if there were grades. I would just say, look, this is what we need. And um, because I, I, I'm just convinced that using your, your story about making the restaurants, I mean, there might be you know, if we wanted to really create a great community or with lots of different restaurants, it would have such a variety of tastes and options and things like that. And I think one of the challenges we have in education is everybody runs to whatever the new idea and topic is. My my example is that you know blended learning has become an incredibly um, a flashpoint right now. Uh, the flipped classroom has become one. Um, and my sense is it's you know. There's not one way to do this work. And so what it's about is it's about blended models and blended opportunities. And um, it's not about any one particular um, way. Um, I work for an incredibly um, large and you know, kind of exciting uh, online company. I will tell people online learning is not for everyone. Um, what we some people need to be in front of the class. Some people could be online. I was I've been interviewing lately some students in the online high school. We have forty three thousand students in our high school. <laughs> That's one of the biggest. It's the biggest high school in the country. And um, and I asked them why did you choose to do this? And it's and I've had students say things like this to me. Um, I love to stand up when I learn. I don't like to sit all day. I like to listen to music when I learn. I like to walk around when I read. And I'm thinking, you know, these are people uh, that, you know, they just have unique needs. And so you, you, every time we try to standardize the approach to learning, I, or standardize the approach to food, or standardize all these approaches, you're standardizing things to non-standardized individuals. So there has to be a level of tolerance. Now, I know people will say, well, everybody should be able to read this. And I think that that will, look, I mean, I, I think it happens. I don't, meet, I don't meet too many students that say I don't want to read. I meet a lot of students that say I don't want to read Tale of Two Cities. Did you lose your mic or have you finished? No, I stopped. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
So it occurs <laughs> to me that maybe there's an interesting driver here that we can get to in the student voice piece, which is maybe it's empowering the people in that community to want and expect good food and creating a culture of uh, that, that allows for that need to be met, but, but allowing in some way for the community to um, voice their interest in good food. Okay, we're going to lose time here. So uh, we don't have okay. to talk long, long about Penn Foster, but I'm really interested in this model because this is 1890, the distance learning program um, yes. that, that now has graduated or has had 15 million students? I can't remember the number, but uh, this yeah, is a significant we, we story, think, right? We, yeah, we are currently doing, you know, in 19, I think it was 1945, we had 5 million graduates. Um, it's an interesting school because um, Thomas Edison was one of the designers of one of the early courses on electricity. Um, there's been, you know, some joint chiefs of staff, uh, the builder of the George Washington Bridge and others that have uh, taken part. I mean, the, the school used to be called the International Correspondence School. Um, it still retains the ICS brand in Mont in Canada, but um, it's a you know it's a, a very large um, high school career school and college that um, is really a system that we're beginning to develop. Um, and one of the reasons I, I I I decided to join them is that we're really convinced. And I'm not sure if you know this, but um, if you think about the debt that our students in this country incur and the families incur over college and career schools and even in high schools, um, you know, at Penn Foster we finance everybody in the school at zero percent interest rate and they all graduate debt free. Um, it's a pay-as-you-go kind of a school that, you know, um, we're, we're trying to compete against the notion that education is a privilege for those that can afford it. Good education is a privilege for those that can afford it. It's, it's an interesting concept. Um, I'm building a new high school right now with them. Uh, the high school is going to be a, a project-based learning high school. Um, so I, I'm excited about the work. I'm, uh, I'm learning a lot about social, the social media and our students getting together online. But I also know, and as I said earlier, it's not for everybody, but you know, um, we have 43,000 students in our high school. It's pretty interesting, interesting work. Um, we have the largest veterinary tech program in the United States where, you know, somebody could get their veterinary tech degree for about $4,000 and, and uh, it's approved by the American Veterinary Association and off you go to work right after that with no debt. Um, I wish all of my sons and daughters graduated without debt. <laughs> anyway, it's an interesting, it's a very interesting model. Um, so what's interesting to me about... Go ahead. No, that's Sorry, okay. I didn't go ahead. Speak go over you. There's a little bit of a lag. You're, I could see your bandwidth slow down there for a second. Well, what's interesting to me about this model is that it does seem to reward the self-directed learner, um, even the mm -hmm. autodidact. Um, do you think about that and do you think about how to address the learners for whom they're, um, who aren't immediately drawn to that kind of an environment? I, I kind of missed you a little bit there, so if you can 
repeat it, that would be great to see. Yeah, sorry about that. I, we are having a little bit of a connection issue. So I'm interested in the degree to which the, the independent learners and the distance pro, distance program learners need to be independent and self-directed. And do you think about um, what population that might leave behind and how to? Um, yeah, we are. And um, as well? it's funny you raise that because one of the things that we're um, we're we're trying to do, and actually uh, we're working with a um, a couple of uh, people that could help us think about how to address the issue of these independent. They may be independent learners, but they still need community and they still need a sense of belonging. And um, one of the big challenges that we're taking on at, at Penn Foster in our educational program is to um, is to create creating for our online students that like that independent learning but still need a community that what we're trying to do is create that social community. Uh, we, we've, we've built an incredibly powerful online social community under what's called the Jive platform where students do meetups and they do they they get together and help each other and um, it's creating a very interesting um, interesting community and we're, we're seeing these independent learners who who generally would be afraid to ask a question in a class because everyone would be watching them, that they feel very comfortable asking the question online to a teacher. But then when they want to study with other students, they can reach out to this to the community and they're doing, you know, they're creating study buddies, they're creating support systems. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm watching social media explode before my very eyes and watching uh, a population of students uh, realize that they could they could sit quietly and be an independent learner, and then they can, when they need it, they can reach out and get a community. And I think that's one of the real strengths of um, some of the opportunities that are being presented in the online environment. Um, I'm not sure if that helps you in your thinking, but I'm 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 really um, impressed. Uh, our population, we have a lot of, 63% um, of our high school students are between the ages of, say, 14 and 24, but we're seeing, you know, a lot of uh, older adults coming back to, to learn in our associates programs and our career programs. And there's, I've, I saw a 35-year-old gentleman typing a question, is anyone else as old as I am out there? Um, and, and, and 200 people responded in about... Uh, the course of a day, saying, "Yeah, we'll we'll work with you. We'll work together." So I think it's the ability to give people the chance to work independently as well as with a group if they want to. But in you know in traditional classrooms, you're you're hope you're exposed to everything. I'm really anxious to stay in touch with you on the community piece because you're so sort of focused and the history of the organization is so focused on sort of practical mm -hmm. application to work and, and getting in, you know an increase in employment that it seems like you have this sort of brilliant moment where a high school student could theoretically begin to connect with a work community that was of interest and even begin to develop a little bit of an apprenticeship role in that community. That is, is that yes, something you're absolutely. thinking You're thinking about? ahead of me now. <laughs> um, uh, we, are, we are really building out um, a very large career-based um, 
environment. Um, so part of the learning is reaching out to the community, reaching out to do apprenticeships, reaching out to do some additional work um, on a, either a voluntary or paid basis where we really believe, and I think I, I might have sent you a note about this, but you know, I, I, we really believe that the aim of education is not to have our students be successful in school, but to be successful in the lives they lead outside of school. And um, you have to make school much uh, more aligned to the outside world and the excitement of that. And very few people work alone anymore. They collaborate and they reach out. And so that's a big part of what we're beginning to do um, at Penn Foster. And, and the, the new ownership, the new direction is all focused on this idea that that's, that's where, we, where we really need to take this work. Um, I'm excited. We're 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 trying to uh, we're taking our vet tech people and you know uh, if people are if students are in our high school and they want to you know take an elective that's about veterinary medicine it, it just it they they can they can have partnerships and animal shelters and you know uh, getting students to write about that is a lot easier than getting them to write about the theme of a book that they really didn't want to read. So let's use that to segue into the relationship piece, in part because um, I'm, when I'm holding these Hacker Education Friday night conversations on education, we do this exercise where we ask people to remember one of their most significant learning experiences. Unrelated to school, it can be in school or out, but just a, a time when they really learned. And relationships comes up every time we do it. But also, there's this immediate pushback of, I'm not allowed to connect with my students outside of school. Um, there are district's expectations. There are laws related to this in certain areas. Um, as you're building out a network and you're thinking about the relationships between students and teachers, how are you navigating that kind of tricky water of a person who really believes it's important for the kids to know about their teachers and the kind of concern about well, you know, appropriate I think, contact? Um, I think sometimes we um, we overreact to um, some you know we we play to the extremes, and I think that that kind of causes significant uh, challenges in the field. So let me let me say it this way: I think um, most of us know when a when a teacher really cares or when a coach really cares. Um, by how they reach out and provide support when it's not even asked for. And I think um, it's creating, and I think my, uh, my president, Joe Gagnon, would say it's, it's creating a sense of, um, of hospitality, of, of a culture where people feel like you're being cared for. Um, and I think, um, I think there might be some fine lines there, and people are afraid about you know, communicating with our students, but I, I think we're really overreacting in, in, in just too many ways um, to this, this environment about you know, connecting with our students. I think in the online world, our, our students are connecting all the time with our teachers. Um, you know, they, what's, what's interesting is they ask a question, they get an answer, and it's, a, it's pretty quickly done. And they, they feel like someone is there for them. Um, I know they can't see them some, you know, they can't see their faces, but they know by their actions that they really care. I think it's also tied to some of the language that we use. 
uh, one of the things we've done in, in our at Penn Foster is we've we've changed student services uh, to student care. Um, those those subtle changes start to create a sense that this is an environment that they really care about me. Um, we built a set of values in our in our company uh, and at our school. Um, and one of the values is that we want people to surprise and delight the students. We want you to surprise and delight the students. So it's about doing things that go beyond what the expectations are, but not to the point of you know of any relationship, but just doing the right things. If a student is you know loses a book, we we just send it. If a student, you know, and say, here's a book and I've, I've made some excerpts in it for you. But I think we need to start to begin to, um, to behave in ways that show our students that we care about them and that they, that they, they belong in our environment. Um, the sense of belonging is one of the, the most important sense, the important feelings. And so what we're trying to do, um, at least in our environment, is say, look, you're in an online school. You're all by yourself, but we we care for you, and we want you to have a sense that this is your place. You do belong here. You belong here, and we will take care of you. I can hear how much you care about that in your voice. I want to push this even a little bit further. So, our daughter, 14-year-old daughter, last year had a great English teacher. Mm -hmm of life-changing experience, great literature, and she really wanted to know all about him. He was a model for her, right? a model of a person who's leading an interesting life, has, has a child, you know, is married, played soccer in college. Uh, it was really valuable to her. She wanted to know kind of who he was, and I, and I feel like there's some very significant modeling going on there. Yes. You quote Kathleen yes. Cushman, who's been on the show a couple of times that students won't tell you this, but they really do want to know. So how do you get to that place where the institution feels comfortable building the sense that the relationships can be more than just knowing that you care, but you may actually want to know about me as a person, and I have a life outside of school, and I'm um, sort of modeling what it is to be an engaged well, learner. Well, you know, it goes back to that fires in the classroom book um, where, um, you know, there there was an exchange of uh, surveys that that students developed, and um, and I think it's again it, it relates to student voice. If a, you know, we need to be able to create an environment where um, if you're going to be in a classroom in a, in a traditional school environment every day, and you're going to see this particular person. Um, we need to be able to ask students in a in a way what is it that i need what is it that you want me to know about you and then we need to be comfortable with saying to the students and you you can ask me you know develop a survey develop a questionnaire of the things you want to know about me um because i think i think they you know that that's what starts to build a relationship of uh, of real caring and of real understanding um, I, I kind of um, think back to um, you know you talk about uh, experiences, and I um, I just think of the teachers that um, that really made a difference in my life because I never wanted to go to college. I never neither mom or dad or anybody 
I was the first in the family to go to college, but it was it was it was those teachers who um, wanted to know about me, and then um, that that then would say, you know, I'll take you to a play, because um, no one would ever have done that in my uh, in my family, um, and you know, you started to it was it was above and beyond, and I think you know, when you look at the work that that Dennis Litke did in his schools, the Met and the Big Picture Company, where he gave one teacher 20 students for four years. They got to intimately know um, not just the student, but the family. And, and what a gift that is in, in teaching. And um, I know that when I was working at the International Center, we found several schools across the country where you know, kindergarten teachers would pick up kindergarten students and have them till the end of third grade. So you have them for four years, and you get to know a lot about the students, and then you get to build incredible relationships with them. And you know what happens in that environment is students are willing to take a risk to learn new things. And um, I just think that you know we've uh, we've taken that out, um, isn't it? Um, is it uh, 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 Brooks who wrote the Social Animal? Have you read that book? Um, David, David, I have yeah. It's on my shelf. Yeah, and he basically I, I says, know you know, um, we can do all we want to try to rent it to 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 improve education in this country, but um, the secret is that people learn from people they love. Um, when you see a coach get more out of a student athlete, um, it's you know it's not because. Um, it's not because they don't have a relationship, it's because they do have some kind of a relationship. And, and is there a line in the relationships? Yes, there is, but I think we can never, we'll never develop uh, powerful learners that we need in this world if we um, sterilize the environment. Yeah, so let's talk about student voice, because this ends up being a particularly hard topic for people. Um, there, there is there are there ways to distinguish between, say, student voice and self-direction, and sometimes this I sort of the the students run the school or the Sudbury model. Um, I have a hard time sort of finding the right gradations in here. What's your sense well, of the you role know, I think, student um, voice should play? Let me, uh, usually, when I talk about student voice, I start off by saying. I stay in hotels a lot, I fly in airplanes, and I eat at restaurants. And one of the things that all those businesses do is as soon as I'm done, they ask me how the day, how the stay was, how the food was, or how the flight was. Um, that's, they use that information um, to make the necessary changes in their business model to um, be responsive to the customer. Um, our students spend a lot of time in school and very few people ask them how their day was and to ask them for any feedback. Now, uh, I know that there's this, uh, whenever I talk about this, um, I hear teachers, teachers often, some teachers, would, very few by the way, but some teachers would say things like, well, you know, I don't want to listen to student voice because they'll be getting, they, they're going to, they'll use it to get back at me. And um, my reaction to that is, what did you do to them to expect that question to come at you? Um, because um, most most of the teachers that I see at times that 
that use student feedback find it to be incredibly helpful. Um, again, there's a researcher by the name of Russ Qualia who you might love, might want to interview at some time. Uh, he runs the, the Qualia Institute for Student Aspirations. He started a bunch of schools in England. I was out there just a couple of weeks ago. Um, he, it's all centered on student voice. And um, he and the people at the International Center and um, their private nonprofit developed a, a student survey called I Know. And um, it's a survey that you know teachers can use to get direct feedback from their students. And I think part of, um, part of the work that needs to be done is that we need to let students give feedback to teachers without interfering in, with it for a while so that teachers and students can get used to communicating back and forth what, they, what their likes and dislikes are or if what they see are, are good things and not so good things. Um, we, we tend to really struggle with criticism from students. But one of the things we do know um, from a lot, of, uh, a lot of survey work that um, was done for the Gates Foundation by the Qualia Institute is that um, about 48% of the students in this country are bored in school. They, when, when asked to give a word um, to describe school, they say boring. And um, if we really know that learning is, is learning and, and learning, deep learning, really requires a level of excitement and fun, um, then we're missing the boat. And if they're bored, we need to ask them what it is that makes them bored and what it is that we could do to help get it make it become more exciting. And one of my concerns is I think we're ignoring the qualitative side of education because a lot of times we can't put a metric around it. We can't measure it, you know, and um, you can't measure love, um, but we know it when we feel it, when we, you know, we, we understand it, um, and love seems to drive a lot of things in this country. So, you know, I feel like we've got to figure this out, and we, we've got to stop trying to measure, you know, whether somebody can do double-digit addition with carrying before we get a sense that they are excited about being in a classroom, they're excited about being in a learning environment, and they're, and they're trusting of the adult that they're with. Because then once we get those things done, I think learning will take care of itself. I think that may be our theme for the night. The learning takes care of itself. So there's, a, there's just a brilliant statistic in the book where you ask the teachers um, yes. know, how well do they know the students. And the, 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 you know, something like a 93% response. And then you ask the students exactly. how well do you think the teachers know you. And it's a significantly yes. slower response. Is, is that part yes, of the Yes, it is. Because here's what we found out, is that the teachers really did know the students, but they never let the students know that they knew them. Um, you know, when, when, you, when you take qualitative data in, it's, it's really quantitative data until you go back into the groups and you ask questions. So you go back in and you ask teachers, well, how do you know the students? And they would start saying, well, I know Johnny, he's, he, his, his dad works at the shipyard and he plays on this baseball team and I know this and I know that about him. And then you go to the students and they would say, they don't know us. 
And well, how do you know? Well, they don't. All they all they care about is our lessons, and all they care about is our homework. They don't know who I am. They don't know anything about me. And so then we started to go into the go back to the teachers and say, look, when you see students in the hall, when you see them around, say things like. Um, hey, great baseball game the other day, Johnny. I know you played that team, and uh, that's pretty exciting. Or if they have a, a favorite team, or if they, if you know something about them, let them know you know something about them. Um, because once you start to do that, they start to, you know, they they internalize that and say, "Wow, this person really knows who I am," rather than looking at them and saying, "Oh, you know, they, um, the teacher's looking at me because I only got a 70 in that test." Um, they really need to know that you know them. Ray, as a courtesy to our guests in the audience, we finish on time. So I want to thank you. This has really been fun. Well, I I'm really, really appreciate you, um, you know, giving me some time. And uh, I've been following what you're doing. I'm just excited. I think we, we all need to start to pull this energy to become the agents of change for our kids. The book is It's Not Us Against Them, Creating the Schools That We Need, Ray McNulty. Now, Ray, the book is uh, international center uh, right. can be bought yes, at the international center, right? Yeah, you can. Not, and we've been trying to get that released by them to do that, and um, so you still have to go through the international center. But um, okay, and there is a link on great. my blog post to getting the book from there. Thanks, Steve. Ray, thank have you a great evening. It was really fun. Thank you. Bye bye. You too. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Look forward to uh, next week, the Edge of Blog Awards and Cal Newport on So Good They Can't Ignore You. Cal's a great guest. Can't wait to hear him talk about why skills trump passion. Have a good day or evening. Take care. Bye now.